Hey, Davey Rothbard here. At Found, we celebrate notes, letters, photographs, and other intriguing stuff found on the ground. And we also cherish the finders, the kind of people who see a note tumbling down the street and stop to pick it up. Like Annie Coriel. She's a reporter for the New York Times Metro section, which means she spends a lot of time walking the streets of New York City. I wouldn't say I'm like a trash picker or like an inveterate like searcher for lost items or anything like that, but I've been a street reporter for a while now. And when Annie sees something interesting sitting on a curb, she's the kind of person who checks it out. There's a lot of treasure per capita. There are wealthy people, there are people from earlier generations who pass away, and oftentimes if no one who goes through their stuff knows to value it, there can be actual treasures. Annie picks up stuff like playing cards or a lost passport photo. Just everyday stuff, you know? But about six years ago, she stumbled on something unlike anything she'd ever found. I didn't know what to do with it, but I knew that it was kind of a find of another order. That it was, you know, somehow totally different than anything I had found in the past because it was so complete. It wasn't a fragment. It was almost a full record of someone's family history. So it did feel quite different. This week on Found, what happens when you find something you know you can't keep? The story of a mysterious find and the reporter who makes it her mission to track down its owner. Coming up. If I asked you how many subscriptions you have, would you be able to list all of them and how much you're paying? If you would have asked me this question before I started using Rocket Money, I would have said yes. But let me tell you, I would have been so wrong. I can't believe how many I had and all the money I was wasting. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. That's rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. Rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. You can live out your MasterChef dreams. When you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. It was in my driveway. I found it in the trash. In the middle of a library book. On the windshield of my car. From Found the Musical, Killer Films Media, and Wondery, this is Found. I'm Davey Rothbard. Back in 2011, Annie Coriel lived in Crown Heights in Brooklyn. And one night she was walking home and something caught her eye. A big, homemade-looking book. It was 14 inches because I, I measured it at some point. The binding was actually looked like a very sort of sturdy shoelace. And it had these little tiny hinges and a stained wooden cover. It turned out to be a photo album. And it was sitting on top of this big pile of recycling. So it was pretty clear that it hadn't just been sort of 
an accident. <laughs> Whoever put it on the curb intended for it to be thrown out. So that obviously piqued my curiosity because you either have to have some dark family memories that you want to get rid of or just have it not be yours or not have it mean anything to you to throw away something like that. So I took it home. And he starts looking through the pages of this photo album. It's filled with pictures that look maybe 60 years old. The album seemed to begin in a place that wasn't New York and wasn't a city. You know, tall, spindly trees and people posing in a field and dogs and kids in a yard. A lot of the photos were taken outside. And then there would be photos of um, people suddenly in these wonderful 40s outfits with like jaunty little hats and suits posing in front of classic kind of city storefronts, which, you know, were in New York. There were these extraordinary photos of all these couples gathered around tables at nightclubs, at dance halls. And there were all these sort of impossibly real details, like a paper bag crumpled under the table or the tables crowded with cups and ashtrays. And then there were also these photos of families at home. And they were really happy and they were really candid. There's a photo of someone getting their hair cut in the kitchen and everyone gathered together and posing in front of a new television. And there was something else about the album that stood out to Annie. It kind of dawned on me that first night when I looked through the album that I had never seen a black family's photo album from that time. The outfits were familiar and the new television set and the new car Sort of the props were familiar, but the faces were not. That was the most startling aspect. It put me in a strange position. I felt like this wasn't my album, (laughs) that this wasn't like something else that I'd found, that it just automatically became mine because I had found it. Right, right, right. Like, I'm imagining myself in your shoes and I'm thinking like, somebody lost this. Like, who does this belong to and how can I find out who these people are and maybe get this thing back to them. That was my first thought too. And it was sort of, this must have ended up in the trash by mistake. Here Annie was with this incredible photo album and tons of questions. So she goes back to the street where she'd found it, Lincoln Place, and starts asking around, knocking on doors. I sort of described a few images and no one seemed to know. So I left my phone number and I took it back home and no one ever called, and I put it on a shelf, and years went by. From time to time, Annie would catch sight of the photo album on a shelf in her apartment and think to herself, I need to find the person this belongs to. And over time, she felt a growing kind of urgency. Crown Heights is one of the Brooklyn neighborhoods that's been gentrifying over the last years very quickly. So a lot of people have left and a lot of the older residents have left and a lot of new people who've moved in. So there was the sense that I I might not have that much time before the people in the album were gone. So one day, Annie decides to kick it up a notch, to treat this like an investigation. And I thought, okay, well, you know, if I reproach this as a, a reporter, like I would any other story, it won't be so hard. I thought it actually was going to be pretty straightforward. Annie's first clue was a small one, a line of cursive on the backs of some of the pictures. There was a name that cropped up on a few of the photographs, Etta May. They said to Etta May, 
or to my darling Etta Mae or to Etta. Annie figured Etta Mae must be the woman the photo album belonged to. There was one woman who was in a ton of the pictures, and Annie figured, that's got to be her, that's got to be Etta Mae. She was just such an amazing figure. She's, you know, dressed really stylishly and had this great big happy smile and like a little bit of attitude and she smoked cigarettes and just carried herself with a lot of class and a lot of like spirit. Annie thought if she just kept flipping over the photographs and reading the notes on the back, one of them would have Edame's full name and then she'd have something to go on. But there was never a last name. The more Annie looked through the photos, the more she noticed the same man in a lot of them too, hanging out with Edame. And Annie thought, all right, this is probably her husband. In a few of the photos, she's sort of embracing her husband. And then I saw that the man that she's kind of hugging appeared in uniform. So I knew that he had gone off to war and the two of them had been apart. But I didn't know his name at all. So I sort of think, okay, these may be my guys, you know, my central characters, but I need to find out who they are. I knew that I wasn't going to get any further until I found a name. So what I did was I took some of the photographs back to Crown Heights, back to Lincoln Place. Annie starts knocking on doors and showing photocopies of a few of the photos to people up and down the street. But a lot of them are new to the neighborhood. Yeah, they're like, oh, they look great, but we just moved here two years ago. Or I'm sorry, I can't help. What residents told me was that just recently, a lot of the houses had turned over because the residents had grown old and died. And so in the last five years, it had been like 10 or 15 houses. So that sort of gave me a clue. I thought, well, this is probably belongs to one of those households. But it also gave me this fear that, you know, there might not be anyone there who could help me. So eventually I knocked on someone's door and they said, oh, you're gonna wanna talk to Jimmy. Jimmy's the oldest guy on the block. They pointed out the apartment where a guy named Jimmy Burton lived. Annie went down the street and knocked on his door, clutching a few of the photocopied photos in her hand and recording everything with her iPhone. And your neighbors told me that... Who's that, next door? Yeah. Next door they said you should talk to Jimmy. He's, he's the one who's going to know. You know that you have about like 15 seconds to, to gain someone's trust. So I just said, I found an album, a photo album, on the street. I'm hoping to return it to the owner... I'm a reporter. Is there any chance you knew these people? I think curiosity is universal. And people want to see. However, you could also see why this would sound like a total scam. But Jimmy was, from the moment I met him, I knew that I had met someone really special. And he said, uh, that's Mrs. Taylor. Yeah, that's Mrs. Taylor. This is Ikea. And this is Mrs. Taylor here. And that's her husband, Ike. And they lived here forever. And they were the next-door neighbors. Yeah, that's them. I went back carrying the, the entire album to see what more Jimmy could tell me. And I met his wife, Lenore, and their daughter, Carol. And they went through the album with me, which at that point was starting to fall apart and crumble in our hands. And they were like, nope, nope. nope don't recognize anybody. And there's just sort of this, I felt a, a little bit disappointed. No. And then suddenly, you know, Jimmy turns a page and he sort of pauses 
and is peering at the images, and he's like, This looks like me. That's our wedding. Oh my goodness! It's your wedding? Yep. <laughs> There's pictures of his wedding in Edame's photo album. Yeah. So, <laughs> and I could see the two of them, sixty, nearly sixty-five years younger, in the album. Wow. And then, you know, if, if that weren't surprising enough, they say to me, "You know, we were the first black people on our block." And I was like, "Tell me more. You were the first, some of the first black families to move on the block." And Jimmy's wife. Lenore says, yeah, I think we were the first. No, we were the second. The Taylors were the first. And for the first time, Annie got to hear about Etta May, the woman she had been wondering about for years. She had a slight southern accent. She talked a lot. She was described as feisty. Jimmy told me she worked in the garment district, and Ike loved cars, and they smoked cigarettes. <laughs> The way Jimmy Burton described them, Etta May and her husband Ike were the life of the party. They liked to go to dances. They were really social. They would host people. They had a record player, and Ike always tended bar. They created a block association, and so they would have events, and they'd have like a, a poker circle, and they would have block parties. And Ike was always the bartender, and he was, you know, kind of a reserved guy. But he loved to joke. Leaving Crown Heights that night, Annie had everything she needed. She had the full names for the people in these photos, Etta Mae Taylor and Ike Taylor. And so she starts researching like crazy. I'm looking at these, like, really tiny, handwritten census records. There was a surprising amount of detail in those census records and in those news clippings. And she starts piecing together the story of Etta Mae and Ike Taylor's life. She was born in 1918, and he was born in 1921. So she came from Wilson, North Carolina, and he came from Suffolk, Virginia, and they both had fairly large families. They both went to school, and they lived in these single cash crop towns, and they got married right before the Second World War in Suffolk, Virginia, where he was from. Meanwhile, because of Jim Crow, a lot of people are leaving those towns and going to the cities of the North. And Etta Mae and Ike were part of the Great Migration. And like a lot of other black families moving north, they eventually landed in Harlem. Harlem had been one of the first and only areas where, where black New Yorkers could live. It was unofficial segregation. There weren't laws that kept people living apart, but their mortgages made it very difficult for black families to buy homes. There were restrictive mortgages, restrictive rental agreements. So it meant that black families were constrained to a few neighborhoods, and Harlem was one of the main ones, and it starts getting really packed in the 1940s. And Harlem kind of reaches its bursting point. There are just too many people living there. You've got like 12 people living per apartment in these crumbling tenements. So obviously something had to give. And slowly, neighborhoods around the city start opening up to black families. And white families started moving out to the suburbs. So that's the moment at which like the Taylors and the Burtons moved to Crown Heights. The way Jimmy Burton described it, Crown Heights at that time was an idyllic neighborhood. Like a scene from a Norman Rockwell painting, block parties and kids playing ball in the street, everyone knew each other and took care of each other. For the Burtons and for Etta Mae and her husband Ike, it was home. 
In fact, they never left. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com podcast and use code WONDERY to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. So I'm doing that kind of like historical research. And then meanwhile, I'm calling to try to reach relatives. So it's, it's phone numbers, it's Facebook messages, it's emails. And it's like me draw, making these big drawings of a family tree and like crossing names off when I just can't reach the person. Annie, she's still determined to find the right person to give the album to, and she still wants to find out why it ended up in the trash in the first place. Eventually, she finds information for one of Edda May's nieces. Her name is Joanne Barnes, and she lives in Raleigh, North Carolina. And uh, she was in her 70s, so I also thought, man, I hope she's still around. Yeah. And I started calling her, and I would say... Hello, Miss Barnes. This is Annie Corey Allen, a reporter for the New York Times. I found a photo album that may belong to a family member of yours. Could you please give me a call? You know, even as I was saying it, I realized it sounded like a total scam. And that if I got that message, I probably wouldn't call me back either. Annie would try calling her every few weeks, but still nothing. Joanne never picked up and she never called back. I was striking out. My callback rate was like... Zero. <laughs> no, 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 nobody's responding to your Facebook messages. Nobody, nobody's calling you back, and you had. And to then feel I would like... start to like look for other friend, like other names, or you know, just it was get, starting to feel pretty desperate. Annie found some Facebook profiles that she thought might belong to the niece's grandkids, pretty far down the family tree at this point. But she starts reaching out to them too. So I started writing Facebook messages that would say roughly the same thing. For six months. Nothing. I've talked to, like, the relatives of murderers more easily than I talk to these people. (laughs) But then, one night... A little message pops up on my phone, and it it was a message from someone named Craig Barnes in Wilson, North Carolina, which is, I know, where Edda Mae is from, saying, I'm related to Edda Mae Taylor. You know, do you still have the photos? How'd you feel? Or, like... 
<laughs> Were you excited? Oh, I, was, I, I like sent like a big smiley face. Um. <laughs> <laughs> the guy that sent her a message back, Craig Barnes, turned out to be the grandson of Joanne Barnes, Adam A. Taylor's niece, the one Annie had been calling and calling and never hearing back from. This was Adam A.'s great nephew. And so Craig says, okay, I'll call my grandma and I'll set up an interview. Yeah. And it, this is going to be great. And then silence. Silence. <laughs> and, I can't re- and I can't reach him. And so, like, my best bet is, like, suddenly vanished. He, he disappeared, too. He disappeared, too. <laughs> and so I said, you know what? Yeah. I know now that she's the right person. Mm-hmm. I know where she, you know, that she lives in Raleigh. And I'm just going to go to Raleigh. Your, your whole career, you've been knocking on doors. And, right. and that's been your way into people's lives. What, but you usually know, just I don't have to, like, step on a plane to go to it. <laughs> thousand, mi- thousand miles away. Yeah. So Annie books a flight to Raleigh, North Carolina, to find Joanne Barnes, a woman who hasn't returned her calls for six months. And before she knows it, she's standing right at her front door, ringing her buzzer. And at that moment, I had, a, you know, a pang of self-doubt. It's like, what am I doing here? This person has shown no sign that they want to speak with me. I'm here because I found a photo album on the street. How am I supposed to explain this? But I pressed the buzzer, and a woman answered. All right, I'll buzz you in, dear. Thank you so much. I felt more nervous on that short walk from the front door to her apartment than I have Maybe, well, I don't want to say ever, but it was a certain kind of nervousness because I realized that without her, I didn't have a story Mm -hmm. and that there was a, you know, big chance that I could end up handing over the album that afternoon and and going home empty handed. It may all end here. When I listened to it, I could hear that my voice sounded a little shaky. When I'm trying to explain to her who the heck I am and what I'm doing there, I say, I found this album on the street, and I think it belonged to Etta May. Because basically I found this on the street. Oh, yeah? Yeah. And are you a relative of Etta May? And she said, yes, she was my aunt. And I give her the album, and then she just starts laughing, and I start laughing. She's surprised, and I'm surprised and relieved. And then we open up the album, and she says, whoa, these are from way back. And then everything just starts, like the story came together. It was kind of a conversation between her and the photos. You know, I was just there recording and taking notes because... She would say, oh, that's cousin so-and-so, and and that's my brother, and oh, I wonder why he's not in the photo. And it was just this complete kind of, like, direct route to the past. As Annie tells it, the moment was kind of magical. Joanne Barnes was quickly filling in all the blanks in Edame's story, details Annie had been wondering about for so long. Joanne recognized pretty much everyone and everything in the album. This is Wilson. This is the house where she grew up. This is the house where I grew up. Here they are in Harlem. She's with her sister Mildred, and they were both pressers in the garment industry. Some of Joanne's most vivid memories of Etta May and Ike were from her trips as a kid to visit them in Harlem. I know. They, they always dressed up. That was the thing. 
You know, I guess that's why I, when I was around them and I used to see them dressed up, I was like, you know, it was like exciting. Like these were some movie stars or something. <laughs> exactly. You know I mean? <laughs> see, and every Saturday evening, they start getting ready, getting dressed, and put my Uncle Ike would put on his suit and everything, and she get all dressed up. And then and she comes across one that is her as a little girl, like two or three years old. And she says, And that's me. Oh, my God. (laughs) (laughs) That's me. And she says, you know, my father would make these clothes for me, and I always had these bows in my hair. And look at those little knock knees. So here I am sitting with a 74-year-old woman who's seeing herself as a child. Little knock knees. That was, you know, another one of those pretty priceless moments for a reporter, but I think for anybody. But for Annie, there were still a few lingering questions. Questions she'd had since she first found the photo album. So one of the things that had stood out to me was that the album ended halfway through. You know, when she put it together, it was the pages were crowded as if there might not be enough space to fit their whole life. There were four and six photos per page and and both sides of the pages. And then it suddenly just stops. And what I realized while I was reporting is that Etta Mae stops keeping the album after her husband dies. Ike Taylor died of cancer at age 50. At the time, Etta Mae was 53, and they never had any children. And there's this really beautiful last image of the two of them together in their middle age, sort of smiling at each other, sort of this image of kind of a happy marriage. And it was so sad to see that that was it. That was their golden period in Crown Heights. They finally found a home in Crown Heights after all these years leaving the South, living in these you know, crowded Harlem tenements. They come to Crown Heights. They have this idyllic neighborhood life. And then it's, you know, they did experience it, but it was sad to see that to an extent it was cut short. She outlived him by 40 years, and she stayed in that apartment. She had little dogs, and she would walk around the block faithfully twice a day, you know, rain or shine. But Etta Mae wasn't alone. She was deeply tied to her block, to Lincoln Place. The neighbors became her family, and for them, she was this constant, loving presence. She had chosen to stay, and she lived there, and she was a big part of the neighborhood, and a lot of the neighborhood kids would, you know, knew her because of her little dogs, and she helped raise them. And eventually, when she grows old and frail, those same neighborhood kids take care of her, and they walk her dog for her, and they bring her dog food, and they all remembered her big smile and that she would have something to say to each of them. And uh, her legs were bad, and eventually she couldn't really walk. One of her neighbor's last memories of seeing Etta Mae out and about was in 2008. She was trying to make her way down the block, and the neighbor asked her, you know, where, where are you going? And she said, oh, I'm going to vote. And she was trying to walk to go vote for... for Obama's first first election. Wow. And the neighbor said, you're not going to walk. I'm going to give you a ride. And she said that she was just so excited to see a black man, 
you know, become president. Yeah. This woman who was born a hun- nearly 100 years ago at that point, who had grown up in, you know, the segregated South to see that transformation happen. So Edna May saw a number of transformations in her lifetime. A few years later, Edna May passed away. And her niece, Joanne Barnes, made the trip to New York to clean out her apartment. It still had the old sink and cabinets and all the old furniture from the 50s and the record player and all the records that she and Ike had collected and the remnants of his bar. And she was just completely overwhelmed. So the niece said, you know, I can't take all this back with me to North Carolina. So she turned to the landlady and she said, you know, I'm going to leave. You can open the doors and let the neighbors come take what they want. And so she just took a few things for herself and her family, and she headed back to North Carolina, and she never saw the album. So Edna May's landlady cleared out what Joanne didn't take with her. Piles and piles of the remnants of someone else's life. One of those piles included the album, and I walked by one night on my way home and picked it up and took it home. I've always been entranced by the power of found stuff. A Polaroid found in the gutter, a love letter pulled across the street by the wind. Each find gives you a window into someone else's life, just a glimpse, and you get to imagine the rest of the story. But sometimes your imagination is so vivid, it's easy to forget that there are real people behind each note, behind each photograph. And it takes someone special, like Andy Coriel, to actually unravel the mystery behind the find. Now, the photo album that Annie found is back with Edna Mae Taylor's family. And it wouldn't be if Annie wasn't the kind of person who sees something interesting on the street and stops to pick it up. That's it for this week. If you're digging the show, make sure you're subscribed to Found on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can hear new episodes every other Wednesday. And I've got a favor to ask. We're in a competition with other podcasts to see who can get the most responses to our audience survey. It only takes five minutes, and you can do it from your phone at wondery.com survey. You can find a link in the episode description, too. Next time on Found, we're sifting through some very adult finds with actress and comedian Kristen Shaw. If you have children listening, uh, turn them around, send them outside, put some earmuffs over their ears, um, maybe have them read the Bible or something, because we're about to read some real sexy shit. But in the meantime, we want you to call us. We get so many amazing finds from listeners, but we really want to hear your stories, not just read about them. So now, check it out. You can call us at 707-73-FOUND. Anytime, any hour of the day and leave us a voicemail about your found story. You might just hear it on the next episode of the show. So call us at 707-73-FOUND. We really want to hear from you. We are so grateful to Annie Coriel for sharing this amazing story with us. you got to read the article she wrote for the New York Times about the photo album. It's called Love and Black Lives in Pictures Found on a Brooklyn Street. And you can check out pictures from the album and pictures of the album itself right there on the New York Times website. From Wondery, this is Found. To hear more episodes of Found, listen exclusively with Wondery Plus. 
Join Wondery Plus for more exclusives, binges, early access, and ad-free listening. Available in the Wondery app. Found's executive producers are Victoria Lang, Jamie Selka, Eva Price for Found the Musical, and Adrian Becker for Killer Films Media. Found is produced by Davey Rothbart and Alyssa Dudley. Haley Hirschman is the co-producer. Talent executive is Julie Zahn. Eli Bolin is the music director. And the audio engineer is Sergio Enriquez. Consulting help comes from Ben Adair. Haley Watkins is the production assistant. Special thanks to the Found Magazine team. Welcome to Pura, the most pristine, safe, climate-stable city on Earth. A haven amidst the wreckage. Here, you're safe from heat domes, superstorms, water bandits in the outer lands. There's no crime in Pura, no murder, no suicide. And best of all, there's no cost to join us in Pura. Promised to keep you safe. They killed her! You took everything! In a world that doesn't feel so safe anymore, we're waiting for you. Here, in Pure. The Last City is a new scripted audio drama from Wondery. Enjoy The Last City on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of The Last City right now, ad-free, on Wondery+. Plus. Get started with your free trial at wondery.com slash plus.